Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, Bob Ritchie, SAIC's Chief Technology Officer, on how the company's U.S. Air Force cloud-based command and control contract could be a model for getting big things done and done fast. But first, joining us is David Schild, the Executive Director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, to make the case for uh, passage of the Defense Production Act purchase account uh, at the House pass level of $681 million and $1.08 billion for uh, industrial base analysis and sustainment uh, for printed circuit boards in a letter sponsored by PBCAA and the International Printed Circuit Board Association, IPC, uh, was signed by 54 top microelectronics executives uh, from across the industry, as we've discussed before on this program, uh, while Congress has invested tens of billions of dollars uh, for semiconductors, that's about 30% of the problem. Uh, the other 70% uh, lies also in the other elements of the microelectronics ecosystem, including printed uh, circuit boards. Uh, David, welcome back to the program, and thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Vago. Uh, it is uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, so walk us through where we are on different elements of the problem, right? I mean, we've got uh, part of it is an appropriations issue, part of it is an authorization issue, part of it is a House issue, part of it is a cuts issue, and another part of it is a Senate issue, right? W walk us through where we stand on this, because as you uh, explained when you joined us uh, last year, this is all very important, and it's great that we have the CHIPS Act and we are investing in semiconductors, but that's a part of the problem. The printed circuit boards and all the other elements of the ecosystem are, are equally important and we're playing catch up across the board on this. Walk, walk us through where we stand legislatively to try to get some of the resources applied to this to tackle it as part of sort of a national organized industrial base initiative. Happy to do so. And I think it's an exciting time in Washington as there's a bipartisan consensus that industrial policy and national security now intersect, Vago. Uh, as you discussed, the CHIPS Act came about because the U.S. was only making 13% of the world's semiconductors. And of course, those are the brains of the microelectronics assemblies that power everything we depend on, right? Everything from F-150s to F-35s. Now, we like to say that chips right. don't float. And while the CHIPS Act is a tremendous down payment to the tune of $52 billion, if we don't make a similar investment in IC substrates and printed circuit boards, and we only make 4% of the world's PCBs and less than 1% of the world's IC substrates, we're simply not going to have a truly secure and sustainable supply chain. Congress recognizes this. It's why we have a number of pieces of standalone legislation, as well as roles in the appropriations and authorization process. This week, as you mentioned, IPC joined with PCBAA to call for a restoration of cuts to the F Defense Production Act account and the IBAS program, because that's the way the Pentagon very quickly disperses funds for leading-edge technologies in microelectronics. The DPA, the Defense Production Act, designates these as critical national security technologies. And we saw just in the last couple of months, Vago, some critical awards, right? Um, almost $85 million split between two companies in Michigan and New Hampshire to produce leading-edge integrated circuit substrates and organic PCBs for the Department of Defense. That is a nice down payment, as we say, but we need to be spending hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on domestic capacity if we truly want to have an industry that can serve our military for the long term. 
Um, so where are we now in the mechanics, right? And I think I uh, asked you, right? I mean, I think it's self-evident how important this is. So I don't necessarily think you've got to say any more on that. Um, and I, I love the uh, Chips Don't Float uh, Act, at least these chips don't float. Um, what are the other elements of this, right? I mean, what's the mindset sure. that people have to go into this? Because this is not a one and done light bill that you're going to get out of this, whether it's 1.08 billion or 618 million, right? I mean, right. these are down payments into what is going to be a much more sizable long-term investment. Yeah, there's money at the Pentagon through the DPA account. And of course, we're calling on Congress to appropriate the funds. And then we're calling on the authorizers to direct the Pentagon very specifically to make the investments in PCBs and IC substrates. So for FY24 and into FY25, We've got a bipartisan coalition that supports these moves. We've got, you know, hundreds of companies across the country that are directly impacted by this. And of course, these are the suppliers to the OEMs and the primes who keep our major weapon systems online. So there is um, something across the entire industrial base here that that has an impact. And that's the money side of it. From a policy perspective, Vago, we certainly think that a couple of things need to happen, right? There's NDAA language that says by 2027, the Pentagon needs to look inside its supply chains and have a plan to remove microelectronics from foreign adversarial sources. We have standalone legislation in the House and hopefully soon in the Senate. That's our version of the CHIPS Act, a bill that would introduce billions of dollars in grants to be administered by the Department of Commerce, as well as, very importantly, a tax credit, a tax credit for anyone who buys American-made PCBs and substrates. That's the only way you get to a sustainable demand signal. That's the only way you say to vice presidents of supply chain and procurement who want to diversify their portfolio in this post-COVID world where we're still having disruptions of global transport and the shipping of goods. They want to source in a more balanced way. They want to have an even portfolio. They need an economic incentive to do it. I think the United States is playing catch-up on industrial policy after decades of other countries, sometimes our adversaries, deciding they want to own this. That's resonating on the Hill. Yeah, do do you, you know, you mentioned uh, industrial strategy. We now have a first ever national defense industrial uh, strategy that was released. Are you satisfied that it's got the right language in it? Yes, I am very happy with the work that uh, Assistant Secretary and Dr. Taylor Kelly has done on this. I think that report really shines a bright light on the weak spots in the supply chain. It's very good for the Pentagon to look inside of its processes and ask hard questions about how its weapon systems come online. Now we need action. The Pentagon has illuminated the problem. It's on Congress to start dispersing funds and making changes in appropriations and authorization bills every year that will give the DOD the power to address the shortfalls they've identified. Are you con are you confident that lawmakers are going to do the right thing uh, on this? Right. I mean, we've seen time and again there is an opportunity to the right to do the right thing. Just in recent weeks, we're, we've we've seen in recent days, in fact, we've seen where maybe suboptimal outcomes uh, can can happen for political reasons. Are you comfortable that this is going to get through at the levels you need it to get through? There are a lot of headwinds right now in terms of funding, and we're very clear with our members and with the industry that Congress is tightening up the purse strings and that an election year is going to be a distraction. But I remind people all the time that some of the biggest companies in the world took five years to advance the CHIPS Act across the goal line. We're um, an industry that is emerging in this space as right. folks who educate and advocate and hopefully in turn legislate. But I am optimistic because I do hear on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans acknowledge the nature of the problem. They agree that we have to do more. 
the challenge for us, Vago, is going to be getting over uh, a very tight fiscal environment and a very distracted environment during an election year. But we're not going to run out of patience on this. And I was on Capitol Hill last week getting from Democrats and Republicans alike um, the right kind of signals that they take this seriously. All you have to do is right. you know, turn on the TV or log on to any of your social media feeds or open the newspaper, and you will see news that underscores the importance of action. So this is not something that we can simply keep pushing to the right and say it's a problem we're going to solve 10 years from now. It needs to be addressed immediately. The awards that are coming out of the Pentagon are a recognition that the Pentagon doesn't want to wait. So right. let's have Congress give them the tools they need. Let's have the Department of Congress be empowered to act. Let's give this administration what they're asking for to go ahead and support the industry. Uh, let me ask you, and we've got about 30 seconds left, uh, about whether – uh, the defense industry supports this, right? I mean, time and again, we've seen legislation or trying to, for example, get domestic rare earth supplies. And some of the biggest contractors have opposed that because they're like, look, it's really cheaper for us to do what it is we're, we're doing. Do you, is there an understanding across the industrial base that this has to happen and that in some cases it might be a little bit more money, but at the end of the day, it's an important element of national security not to have some of these vulnerabilities. Or is there sufficient progress on that front from your perspective? I'm encouraged by what we hear from OEMs, and we meet with them on a regular basis, and they talk about wanting to mitigate risk. They talk about wanting to diverse their supply chains. They don't like having a dependency. Now, let's balance that against the economic realities. The reason that our legislation contains direct grants for the manufacturers of chips and substrates along with a tax credit for the purchasers is because we want to give OEMs an economic incentive to act. They right. see the risk. Their bottom line has to be satisfied as well. That's what the tax credit does. So we're trying to tackle this on two fronts, a priority to rebalance supply chains along with a responsibility to shareholders and customers. Um, and I would note, right, I mean, the elegance of the CHIPS Act is it has a multiplier effect. You guys are actually making there, – there are loans that are part of it. There are grants that are part of it to, to prime a broader economic pump so that it's not just sort of a naked direct subsidization, rather an investment in capability over a protracted period of time. It's a 10-year it's a piece of legislation, right? So when you look at it that way, it's, it's not as um, you know, crazy a figure as some folks are trying to portray it. It's not like – you know, $50 billion, $54 billion is going directly, you know, in one year, it's it's a longer piece of legislation. And that's exactly the long cycle view that you're urging members to take on printed circuit boards and the rest of the ecosystem. That's right, Vago. It took us more than 30 years to create this problem. It's going to take us more than 30 days or 30 months to dig ourselves out of this hole. The time to start is right now. And you're right. We want a sustainable industry that can stand on its own two feet and deliver the technology of the future for decades to come. David, thanks so very much. Best of luck to you guys and look forward to getting regular uh, updates from you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago. And a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. And joining us now is Dr. Bob Ritchie. He is the Chief Technology Officer at SAIC, otherwise known as Science Applications International Corporation, although I don't think they call that that anymore. Bob, thanks so very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Vago. Thanks for having me on. 
Uh, it is an absolute pleasure. It was terrific seeing you late last year at SEIC's uh, big uh, technology conference uh, in uh, Roslyn. Uh, and we had an opportunity there, uh, and you spoke about the reality that you can actually do innovative things very, very quickly um, and not necessarily that expensively. And what we're talking about is SEIC's uh, cloud-based command and control contract. You guys were awarded that uh, last January. Uh, it was a $112 million contract that actually satisfied a critical piece of the Air Force's advanced battle management system. Tell us a little bit about the contract and what were the keys to try to execute it in a year, right? We, we at a time when folks are kind of roll their eyes when they hear innovation and speed, this would seem to be a perfect case study for innovation, speed, and scratching an itch with existing technology. Take it away. Sure. Thanks, Swago. So uh the contract writ large, it's, it's a kind of a lofty name, right? Cloud-based command and control. Um, and and so in and of itself, in terms of the scope that it can address, is anything command and control based under this hypothesis that doing it in the cloud and from an ethos perspective, leveraging hyperscalers or standing on the shoulders of giants to reimagine kind of with first principle design thinking, how would we go about reattacking the problem space of command and control systems, both from a speed of need and relevancy of capability being delivered to warfighters, as well as resiliency and elasticity that a cloud ecosystem can provide. Uh, but then you kind of overlay that with the demands of the Department of Defense and, and the warfighter with some austere, uh, disconnected and, and disenfranchised, intermittent and latent uh, environments or detail environments in terms of the ability to have that capability in a contested theater, a contested space, because we can't always rely like commercial internet on the ability to reach back to quote unquote cloud computing. Right. The other side of that contract, I'll say, is it it fundamentally aligns when it says cloud-based, it, it aligns with the NIST definition of cloud. So right. uh, getting to a point where it's not thinking of, oh, this is some contractor-owned, contractor-operated virtual private cloud that's running on legacy hardware that has to be maintained, uh, third-party uh, virtualization solutions that have to be maintained and upgraded and patched and creating a lot of cost. To your point, how do you do it efficiently and fast? Uh, and so that's a big part of the hypothesis of, of CBC2, cloud-based command and control, when it started out was we want to take advantage of everything that economies of scale hyperscalers have to offer and then focus on that, that warfighter capability on top of it. And that was right. really the key of getting something done uh, within the time frame, so getting to a uh, a minimum viability capability release, minimum viable capability release uh, in six months at a, a secret releasable level, and then being able to go through development testing and operational testing success successfully at at an air defense sector uh, within that first year. And now, uh, just as of last week, it's perfect that we're talking today. Just as of last week, now re released the same capability to a second air defense sector, this time a foreign operated one up in Canada. Uh, so very, very kind of interesting use case there in terms of, of the interoperability and the future scalability and impact on warfighters. And and so what was the key, Bob, to trying to do that, right? I mean, we talk a lot about uh, being able to sort of leverage the existing technology, right? Open cloud NIST architecture, as opposed to something proprietary, which in the good old days, <laughs> every contractor would want to steer the customer to, but now we're in an open architecture environment. What were the keys? Was it the requirements definition? Was it the end goal? Like what 
what drove that degree of speed? Because I don't think, you know, normally you're waiting six months for a meeting as opposed <laughs> to actually delivering a minimal viable product, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so there, there were kind of several components. I'll say starting with the acquisition kind of life cycle and policy, um, the ABMS portfolio writ large takes advantage of the agile acquisition pathways and, and the software acquisition pathways, which really focus on kind of framing around a statement of objectives as opposed to a, a long drawn out uh, you know, performance work statement, the detailed amount of shells. So you really kind of start with the sue of what you're trying to achieve and iterate on it quickly. Uh, in fact, in the agile acquisition pathway, I believe you only have 12 months to actually ship your first production workload. So there's some policy guards around using this agile pathway, um, but as well as then the advantages of focusing on end user customer outcomes, as opposed to um, you know kind of getting into a self-licking ice cream cone of reiterating on requirements and polishing the requirements and never actually delivering. So from an acquisition standpoint, that was one component. The next component I mentioned uh, earlier that the the kind of relying on economies of scale that already exist. So that meant both the hyperscalers, so the capabilities uh, in the case of our, our MBCRs, leveraging what Amazon Web Services has to offer. But in and of itself, it still is not enough to meet the Department of Defense's needs in terms of uh, data isolation and data-centric security and and kind of, we'll call it continuous ATO, software and mission factory capabilities. And so we were then able to leverage previous Department of Air Force investments in Cloud One to then give us an additional like, leg up in terms of things we can inherit and leverage from that economy or that economy of scale enterprise investment. And then DOD's Platform One on top of Cloud One to provide us some reuse of secure platforms and moving to secure container orchestration. So by, by kind of agreeing up front that we're not going to reinvent those wheels, it allowed us to get right after what are the mission capabilities that our combatant commands need solved in the first set of use cases focusing on NORA Northcom, and then working closely with them on how do we help support NORA Northcom's mission of the, the defense of the North Atlantic uh, air and tactical air picture. And how, how do we provide them both the data they need in, in real time at the enclaves they need it at, but then augment, so not flooding them with a ton of data, but focusing on the usability and the customer warfighter experience of how do I augment their, their kind of decision making capabilities such that it's not just inundated. Now all this data is available. So that was kind of the key of leveraging that agile acquisition pathway, bringing the stakeholder, in this case, North Northcom in and the right. warfighters at the air defense sectors and incrementally delivering to them every two weeks to say, hey, this is what we talked about. Now you're using it. You're getting your hands on it. Um, is this meeting your need and taking that feedback loop in? So we're continually vetting the delivered capability against, did it have an operational outcome instead of right. did the software pass all my SOVOT and government tests that I check all the boxes that all the requirements are met uh, so we could focus on that warfighter value as opposed to, uh, you know, the traditional waterfall requirements checklists. Um, we've uh, been hearing from uh, Secretary Kendall, uh, as well as uh, uh, Andrew Hunter, the acquisition executive at the Air Force, about sort of moving more quickly, more broadly, uh, to try to get big things done and talk less about them and, and deliver them more, Bob. Um, where else does this, can this model be applied, right? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are saying, oh, Vago, come on. I mean, this isn't really that big of a deal. It was more of a cloud contract. It's not a hardware contract, um, but you've got some hardware experience also, right? Where where else can this kind of approach be used? 
to actually be able to deliver capability more more quickly or does the soft can the software approach actually help us get more out of the hardware that we already have as opposed to necessarily replacing it talk talk to us about the 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 software hardware yin and yang here uh bob and and where else it can be scaled Sure. Yeah. I'll start with uh, kind of where I see the difference between a software factory and a mission factory. Um, and I know even the term factory, it, there's there's some uh, reverence and or negative emotions or connotations around the term software factory. Um, <laughs> but because uh, it's, it's, you know, there's there's a, a trade craft there. It's a, it's a art form to some in, in the more zealous kind of uh, sense. And I'm a software developer at heart. So I, I definitely take pride in the art form that is software engineering and development. But the mission aspect is where it's not just about CICD of software capabilities. It's not just about continuous delivery of value from a software delivery standpoint, but it's also incorporated the latest in kind of state-of-the-art tooling around model-based systems engineering, digital twin capability, as well as modeling and simulation capabilities, such that you have this synthetic ecosystem of modeling out all the sensors that you have in your order of battle, all the enemy sensors that they have, how they might react uh, from a signal standpoint. And then when I'm driving those requirements with, you know, vetting them with my stakeholders in the agile kind of life cycle process, I'm able to test and vet before I put, you know, any lines of code down, I can simulate. If I had this sensor integrated and it would generate this extra data, what would be the impact on my user experience? So now I can start to vet, well, I want to incorporate that data and that sensor to meet this mission need, but I also need to then contract and integrate this other kind of UX company to pull in and augment the picture that they're going to see. So I'm not inundating them with 50,000 more data points. Um, by doing that end to end, it really gets to your point of how do we not look at software as replacing hardware, but think of it more as this fungible information technology and operational technology convergence. And that's an area where we as a company have been really focused over the past few years on how do we have an end-to-end -end digital thread that goes all the way from hardware specifications and requirements, digital twinning of those capabilities, and the necessary software, whether it's kind of web-based command and control software or fully integrated software that's going to run embedded in a real-time operating system on vehicles, whether that's aircraft or Navy subs or even firing systems uh, across the Army. Those are areas where we are heavily invested as a company, and CBC2 is a direct representation of how that kind of manifests. What are the next phases of this, right? I mean, as you said, you're getting into an iterative process uh, where the customer uses the capability, then you're constantly updating, right, which is exactly the kind of virtuous cycle that we want to be in. What are the next phases of this uh, this contract Um and capability where you think you'll next be applying it or the Air Force will next be applying it? Yeah, great, great question. I, I think for, for sure, the original scope with NORAD Northcom is to expand and deliver to all their air defense segments uh, around the world. So right now, uh, as you mentioned, EADS is the Eastern Air Defense Sector. And the one we just uh, finished integrating with last week was CADS up in Canada. Uh, but there are several others in, in you know, the Western Seaboard in Alaska and, and uh, the Indo-Pacific Theater that are also on the horizon for the first half of this year in terms of getting that capability and getting that edge to cloud resiliency baked in. In parallel to that, it's looking at different mission sets. So NORAD Northcom was the first combatant command to kind of pilot this new delivery model, but heavily focused on CENTCOM and Indo-PACOM and uh, UCOM in terms of 
you know, fast following use cases of how do we make sure their mission needs are also able to take advantage of new capability every two weeks and automated failover and when you disconnect and reconnect from the cloud to the edge, uh, such that we have this entire kind of global digital ecosystem from a command and control aspect. Uh, and then moving up from tactical command and control up to strategic level, whether it's uh, you know your, your kind of air operational command level or all the way down to ground forces, troop movement, uh, undersea dominance sort of aspect of how we think of C2, all the way out into space. And uh, you know in that integration, this is one of those fun synergies with the Department of the Air Force covering both Air Force and Space Force. There's a lot of reuse into the SDA, uh, and then even into civil space, we think about like what, what NOAA does from a space safety side. So that's where we're looking to expand this capability set moving forward. At a time when folks are maybe overusing the term, uh, Bob, you know, innovation, and there's among some a little bit of innovation uh, fatigue, um, still we're finding novel ways of doing things, right? This contract and is is one you know example of that. At the same time, the technology itself is fundamentally changing. Um, to your point, right? It's more open architecture. There are cloud services that are available at scale and at security that were unimaginable if you went back a decade ago, right? I mean, it was more of a theoretical idea. From the standpoint of a CTO, what are the most exciting technologies um, and, and particularly on the commercial side as well, that you think are going to prove the most game-changing on the defense side of the equation? Well, I, I definitely think the, from and this is a, some, a common element of, of CBT2's architecture as well as other architectures, I think getting to um, a, a streaming data access layer on top of kind of the more traditional API-driven REST-based or, or, or other technology, API-driven data access layers, and getting that collapsed down and making that data accessible is, is a we'll call it a horizon zero innovation, right? That, that we've made severe, significant progress with CBC2 and other, other programs out there like that to get the data-centric security baked in. And the reason why I say that first is then it allows and open, opens up kind of this fused layer of machine analytics, so I, when I and I'm not you know not to say oh it's generative AI it's going to solve all the problems, it, it you know that's more on the innovation theater side. What I mean is uh, operationalization of AI models that actually are tied to mission outcomes. So whether that's computer computer imagery or in the case of CBC two track anomaly detection and automatic selection and advising of what the best COA is in the face of an anomaly, so that we can not only improve the uh, user experience in terms of cognitive load, but also get to a more real-time uh, ability to predict as opposed to just react and, and take advantage of, of some of those, we'll call it shorter, shortening of effector chains. Um, on the commercial side, I think that's that's really kind of where everyone is focused as well from, uh, you know, when I before I came back to SAC, I was at Capital One, a lot of what we were doing was how do I speed up the in the loop, in the point of sale transaction processing about you know fraud detection and and prevention in that regard, it's not all that different a problem that what we see you know at IRS from a modernization standpoint on how they want to do real time tax tax processing and and a more enhanced user experience for filing, um, and I think right. that's that that's going to be that kind of next level of innovation. Longer term than that, you know, we're talking about some of the. Uh, commoditization and ubiquitous availability of uh, quant 
quantum computing, but I think that's probably three or five years out. Um, quantum resiliency is probably nearer to the boat, but that's more of a, right. a kind of a cyber innovation than anything else. But yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to say, as somebody who's covered quantum for decades, uh, I always love the <laughs> fact that it's five years away, whereas this time we might actually be less than five years away. Uh, yeah. That's uh, a shout out to Bo Ewald of D-Wave, uh, who uh, <laughs> was not that long ago that he was like, yeah, it's about five years away. Uh, and it was uh, and he was right. Uh, uh, God, who knew? Um, in about 30 <laughs> uh, seconds, Bob, are is this entire wheel right? I mean, at, at a time when people feel like we're not moving fast enough, are you seeing the DoD wheel actually move faster from your standpoint? Yes, I, I, I think so. Yes, I think I think the DoD, it, both from an acquisition pathway standpoint, as well as kind of creating this more. Um, you mentioned open architecture, but there's an open kind of integration ecosystem that's resulting as uh, you coming out as a result where maybe some of the work is moving away from traditional closed off OEMs and primes and more into this software defined integration kind of layer where, you know, there's over 20 subs with us on the CBC2 side that cover down on their capabilities around analytics, on user experience, on DevSecOps. And it's starting to create a real ecosystem for a company like uh, seed innovations or uh, in the defense unicorns and, and those sorts of companies to really participate and make an impact alongside or as part of traditional SIs and or I don't consider SAC a traditional SI. I think we're more of a software integrator uh, or a hardware software integrator than a systems integrator. Bob, thanks very much. Uh, really appreciate you joining us and look forward to having you back on again as one of our regulars. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much, Wago.